my name is Tim Jacobs. I, I'm a, the district superintendent is what they call me. It's kind of a fancy title of one of those districts that was up there. And the evangelical free, it's kind of a funny word. A lot of people think it means free of evangelicals, you know, like gluten-free or sugar-free. <laughs> Sometimes that's why people come to an evangelical free church because they say, finally, you know, a church that's free of those crazy evangelicals. And they show up and they're like, hey, what's, what's going on here? But really, the way I like to think of it is got to separate those two words. Evangelical just basically means messenger of good news. It's the gospel, good news. And free uh, just means the idea that the church is self-governing and, and has the responsibility to take that mission of Jesus Christ in their local context. So really, the easiest way to understand it is almost to separate those words. But I just thought I'd give you a little orientation to that. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 11. And as you're turning there, I'll show you a couple other things as well. This is a picture of our district team that you can see there up on the screen. Um, I had the opportunity to work with some amazing people in our district that spread out over seven states. And I think they're pulling that up there. I think I threw them off a little bit with the video earlier. But you'll see that picture in a second. And... uh, my, I live in the Phoenix area in Arizona, although I'm originally from Los Angeles. So um, Phoenix is kind of the perfect place for me to live in terms of our district because of all the scope. But here is our team. And then um, our district map, you can see that kind of where how the states that we cover. That's the next slide. And you can see that little shaded area there. And really what we're about is we're, we, we help the church. We help the church in three specific ways. First of all, we help churches build and strengthen their leaders. And so you can see here we pulled... Uh, pastors together. So Jared mentioned he's been part of our um, regional gatherings that we do, bringing pastors together to encourage them so no, none of our pastors or church leaders are left alone. We don't want them to live in isolation. The second thing we do is we help churches plant new churches. And so we have uh, Dean Maeda, who's a pastor in Torrance, um, just up the road here. And that's a, a church planner in south of Tucson that he's been coaching. And then um, here is, a, is a, a core team of a church that we're planting um, in Arcadia, so not too far away here, um, you know, up the road, I don't know, an hour or so. And uh, so that's it. We just met with them a couple weeks ago. Super exciting. And the last thing we do is to help churches reach all of the people around them. You know, our district has a lot of changing demographics. And so um, we've made heavy investments specifically in our Spanish-speaking pastors and church planters to give them seminary-level education so that, you know, a lot of times if you're working in a bivocational context, they are able to effectively teach the Word of God and shepherd their communities well. And so we've done a lot of training um, through Training Leaders International and partnered with them. And it's just exciting. But all of it really is to see what, what, what you guys will see in a few weeks as you continue to work through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16, verse 5, which says simply this. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. That's it. That is all that we are after. In, in our ministry with our churches is that our churches emerge stronger and that there's more of them. That's all that we want to see, which is why this passage we're looking at today in Acts chapter 11 is so critical because right now there is a lot of angst and fear and division in our society, and we all know this. I'm sure you guys talk about it a lot here. And the temptation that we have, in fact, I think even the mindset that many of us may have as Christians is to hunker down and to take a defensive position against the culture. Let's just ride this thing out. Let's wait and see. Let's put up the drawbridge. Let's put a big moat around it because the world's getting scarier and scarier. And that kind of thinking is understandable when we look at what's happening around us. 
But when we look at what happened in Acts chapter 11, what we're going to see is that it's actually the case that God leverages chaotic and uncertain times to break new ground for the gospel. It's that when society is convulsing and things come out of the blue and there's all this uncertainty and change, when the deck gets reshuffled, it's in those times when God actually um, uses these times to break new ground for the gospel. So never bet against the movement of God when it feels like everything's going crazy. Never bet against the fact that God's doing more than we can think that he's doing at this particular moment. Because it's times like this, times like this in our society where new doors are opened up and the gospel moves forward and Christianity, other than losing ground, actually gains ground, believe it or not. And so our job is not to look back and wish for the good old days. Because when you look back and look at the good old days, can we be honest? They're really not that good, were they? We think they're good because we edit out all the bad stuff. But they weren't really that good. So we don't want to look back. We want to look forward. We don't want to look inward. We want to look outward. We don't want to contract. We want to expand. And we want to seize new opportunities and to go on offense. And so last week, if you were here, you learned about Peter's vision and the subsequent encounter with the Roman soldier named Cornelius. And the significance of this is huge because for the first time, Peter realizes that Christianity is not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well, which is really good news for most of us. How many Gentiles do we have in the room? You're like, am I a Gentile? I'm not sure. If you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile, okay? Like, I remember sitting in church and they would tell me, I go, what's a Gentile? I didn't know. And then I realized they're talking about me. Isn't that crazy? So you should be really happy. Because there was a time when the early Christians thought, if you're not Jewish, you're not qualified. You're out. And so Peter comes to this conclusion, like, wow, through this whole thing. And so what's happening now is he's coming back from what you learned last week, and he's telling the church leaders in Jerusalem, and specifically who the people that were known as the circumcision party, that's funny, I never put those two words in the same sentence. <laughs> but the Bible does. And these were like the hardliners, right? These were the people. That, now, they were believers, but they weren't very mature believers because they, they were importing all of their culture into Christianity. And that had to get you know, weeded out of them over, over time. That had to get um, explained to them. But Peter's coming back, and he's like, guys, look. So there I was. Minding my own business. When all of a sudden, this, it's this vision and this sheet comes down out of heaven. And there's all of these animals. And, and, and the voice comes from heaven and says, rise, kill, and eat. Which is great news if you're on the carnivore diet, you know. But not good news if you're Peter. Because Peter looked at this stuff and it says, it says this is all non-kosher food. I can't eat this. This is unclean. And the voice says, do not call unclean what I have called clean. And three times this happens because, you know, it takes a while for us to get the clue on things. And then the vision goes away. And all of a sudden, these three guys show up and say, Peter, come with us. And they go over to Cornelius' house. And Peter's telling these church leaders that the Holy Spirit fell upon them in the same way the Holy Spirit fell upon us. And it, it was, this is a mind blower for Peter. 
And it's a mind blower for the Jewish Christians that are there because it's totally outside of their paradigm, especially for the individuals in this circumcision party. And so this is how they react in verse 18 of chapter 11. It says, when they heard these things, they fell silent. You ever hear something so crazy that you just, you you know, you just say, I have no words. That's what people say, no words, no words. This is like, they don't know what to say. They're listening to Peter. And then it says, and they glorify God. So they have no words, and then they glor- when they do speak, they glorify God, saying, listen to this, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. I mean, isn't that crazy? How do they not know that? I mean, seriously, how do you not know that? You have the, the, the crucifixion of Jesus. You have the resurrection of Jesus. They were all contemporaries of this. You have the ascension and Jesus' charge to, to the disciples to do what? Go into all nations and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Like, okay, that's pretty cut and dry. How did they miss it? And how did they miss the fact that the idea of repentance, the changing of one's mind, the turning around that leads to life and forgiveness and and, and eternal life and hope and all that stuff where grace abounds in that scenario, how did they think it's only for them? But as short-sighted as it might sound, let me ask you, based on the idea that grace is available to everyone, how would you answer that? If I put this blank up on the screen, this sentence, And maybe you guys went through a similar thing last week because it's a similar concept, at least as part of it. What what would you put in that blank? Then to, would you be like, then to the the people that voted for the other guy in the last election? Also, God has granted repentance. Wow. Then to, fill in the blank, then to the Trump supporters. Also. Then to the Democrats. Then to the drug dealers. Then to the people whose citizenship may not be clear. Their status. Then to the person who, whose sexual identity is not what I would agree. Also, also God has granted them repentance that leads to life. And for some of us, that's a mind blower. Like, wait a second, really? And so the challenge for the Jewish church leaders at that time was to make room in their imagination and then make room in their churches for people who they just never thought would actually not only be eligible, but receive the gift of grace. In fact, if you want to understand most of the New Testament, at least certainly Paul's writings, a lot of Paul's writings are just about the subject of how two disparate groups who now share the same Savior, get along in a church? How are we going to make room for people that otherwise we would be completely at odds with? I mean, this is like serious stuff. And sometimes I think, you know, we can kind of, it's easy to sit there and say, but we have to understand, even the early church leaders, this perplexed them. It blew them away. But this is what God does in the midst of chaos. When there's a shakeup, it opens up the doors for new things to happen. Uh, it, it, the new ground for the gospel is, is broken. 
But how does he do it? Let's get into even the specifics of how he does it. So I want to pull three kind of things that we can see from this passage. And, and starting with this incident from Peter. Because this incident with Peter really sets up for even, I mean, the incident from Peter is just like, like one instance. This is going to get much, much, much bigger, what's happening. I mean, it's just the scope widens dramatically in, in chapter 11. And I should say this, and it may, you've probably already talked about this a little bit before in your study of Acts. And I think it's so cool that you're taking the time that you're taking to go through this book because it's so powerful and so transformational. But oftentimes we can look at Acts and we say, is it descriptive or is it prescriptive, right? Does it describe what happened? Or does it prescribe, tell us what should happen? And I think it's a mixture of both. I think there's things in Acts that you go, okay, that happened. It's probably not going to happen again, but it described what did happen. And there are some things that we can say, we should look for these as patterns, as, as like when there's times when we could see aspects of this again. And I think the rest of this passage fits into some of that because just as they were chaotic times back then, we're going to go through seasons where we feel like life is kind of, the, the, the moorings are loosening and, and the, the world is changing faster than we ever thought and there's all this unpredictable stuff that goes on and what does God do in that time and I think what he did in Acts is something that we can continue to see today maybe in a different way but the principles are still the same and so let me just give you three of these things to look out for to be aware of so that we're not just like caught sleeping during what could be one of the most dramatic and instrumental and powerful times in our nation's history so the first thing that I think we see is we see the shattering of cultural boundaries. What does God do? How does God move the gospel forward in times of uncertainty? The first thing he does is he shatters cultural boundaries. There's things, lines that you're not supposed to cross, places you're not supposed to go, people you're not supposed to hang out with, people who aren't supposed to necessarily be a part of you. Now those, those boundaries get shattered and broken. So what do we mean by that? Well, look at verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So what's going on here? Well, when Stephen was put to death, which you learned about a little while ago, that freaked all of the Christians out that were in Jerusalem. They didn't want that to happen to them, so they did the natural thing, and they, a lot of them just took off. And some of them went as far away as 300 miles to the city of Antioch which is far north. And there were Jews living there because there were actually Jews um, all over the Roman Empire, especially if you read the historian Rodney Stark, he says perhaps upwards of 10% of the Roman Empire was, were people identified as Jewish. So there's a lot of Jewish population throughout the Roman Empire at that time. So there were Jews up there. And so when they got there, they decided, well, we're just gonna, we're gonna preach to these Jews and tell them what's happened because that was the, the target audience. But then look what happens next. But, but, verse 20, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Look at that. What a concept. They went there. They didn't just preach to the Jews. They preached to the Hellenists, the Greeks, the non-Jews. And this is the first time in the whole book of Acts 
where an intentional reaching across those cultural boundaries on the part of the Jewish Christians took place. Because in the earlier instances with Philip and the Ethiopian, like the Ethiopian was already kind of asking questions. He was reading Isaiah, and the Holy Spirit took him there. And then with the same thing with Peter. Cornelius is, is searching for God. The Holy Spirit's kind of revealing himself to him, and, 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 and Peter is taken there. But this is different, because this is the first time when they're just casting the net out wide, and they're going, it doesn't matter who it is, we're going to talk about Jesus. It doesn't matter who they are. And so this is a brand new thing. And they break social convention. And what does it say? It says the hand of the Lord was on them. Like God wanted this. God was fired up about this. God was making it effective so much so that a great number of people responded. And you got to think about it. You know, they're far away from Jerusalem. And I do think there's something about the influence that a place has on how you think and the rules of that place. And it's almost like they had to get away from Jerusalem, right? Away from the, what they knew. Away from the way things always were. Away from the cultural stuff that made you think a certain way to where they just walked around and they just went, well, who says we can't talk to, to Angelo or, you know, whoever it was. Who, who, who says we can't talk to this Greek person over here? Why, why, why can't we just, see, they just, they, they broke the rule. The unwritten, quote unquote, rule. But that's what God wanted. So let me ask you a question. Right now in all of this cultural chaos and political division and fear of the future, who has God put around you? Like literally, who has God put in proximity to you? Who are you not seeing that's right in front of you? Who are you not seeing that's right in front of you? Because you're looking past going, yeah, I mean, nothing, no offense, don't, not like I don't like, it's just, I don't see it. I don't see it. But they're right there. I love the couple that was up here at the very beginning. They nailed it. I almost like, man, that was like perfect sermon illustration right there. Because what did they say? When COVID happened, we couldn't walk around. So we walked around late at night, and then we started like these, this clandestine group you know, of people that met and all these people that he probably other, this couple probably wouldn't otherwise have inter, interfaced or interacted with. They interacted with because of the chaos of the situation. And there are people right in front of them. That's not hard. And it happened right here. It's a perfect, perfect example of just not missing who is right already in front of us. And I think, I mean, I do that. We all tend to do that as people. You know, every generation thinks that the younger generation, the generation coming up after them is a lost cause. Every generation does, right? Kids these days. And you can make a pretty good argument, right? You go, look at that. There's one guy, his name is Lester Tenney. He wrote a book. Listen to what he said about the youth of America. They seem utterly incapable of taking on their responsibilities to the nation. They are aimless soft, and generally immature. Do you know when he wrote that? 1939. He said that about the greatest generation. But at the time, that's how a lot of people felt. So here's this guy. He looked at them. Ah, these, they're not capable of anything. Saw right past the possibility. that was right in front of him. Don't do that. Don't bet against people made in the image of God and what they are capable of when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of them. You know, it's funny. Um, a guy was preaching at a church, one of our churches in New Mexico last week, and uh, afterwards this guy came up to me, 
And he, it was so cool because he was so flat out honest. And he said, you know what? He said, listen to your sermon. This is a different sermon than this. But we were talking about a similar subject. And he said, I realized that I've been caring more about converting someone to my political party than to Jesus. And that has gotten in the way of my witness. That I'm more excited about trying to convince them to believe about my politics than my Savior. And he says, i got to change that. i got to figure that out. And I appreciate that because, can I be honest, that's kind of the water that a lot of our, our evangelical Christians are swimming in right now. It just is. We can't separate that stuff. And so, in these uncertain times, God leverages chaos and uncertainty to move the gospel forward. And one of the first ways he does it is by shattering the, the divisions between people. So let me ask you, who's around you? Who, who are you looking past? Who are you not seeing? And what, are, what, what obstacles are you and I putting up in front of people so they just miss? Oh, I can't talk to that person. They're not Jewish. I can't talk to the person that they, they look like they would never, you know, we wouldn't align politically. We wouldn't align this way. We wouldn't align that way. I, 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 would, I, don't, want, I, I don't know what this person's, you know, uh, belief is on, on government or what their immigration status or whatever you might be, whatever the case might be. And we just look past people. They're not in my same socioeconomic class. They're, they're not the same age as me, whatever. So the second thing God does, though, if we see from this passage, so not only is he is in the times of chaos, he's reshuffling the deck and he's shattering these, these, these uh, barriers that have been in place for a long time in the thinking of people. The next thing he does is he establishes new churches, new congregations out of this. So look at this in verse 22. The report of this, the report of the great number of people we talked about, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas. Remember Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. By the way, do you see that? I put that in bold there because... You know, a lot of times, I, I'll, you know, I'll hear our pastors say this sometimes, and sometimes Christians will say, well, it do, numbers don't matter. It doesn't matter about numbers. I go, okay, well, we shouldn't be obsessed by numbers, but this is the second time in just a couple verses, and there's going to be one more time that there was a note to say, a great many people are coming to the Lord. There's actually a book in the Bible called Numbers, okay? <laughs> so... It's not like we should be obsessed and driven by and idolize numbers, but we also shouldn't say they don't matter. Because every number is a human being that represents someone made in the image of God that has an eternal destination. And it was important enough for Luke to include that as a measure of effectiveness and impact among what was happening in Antioch. But here's the crazy thing. So not only is now Barnabas, so they're like, Okay, some crazy stuff's happening there. So they send Barnabas out there. He sees it. And look what happens in verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, now remember Saul is the pre-Paul, right? Same guy, but other name. And this is before Paul rises to prominence. So now it's Barnabas and Saul. Pretty soon it's going to be Paul and Barnabas, right? So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So he, bring, he gets help. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. 
Isn't that crazy? So the first time that followers of Jesus are given a name, an identity, identified as a people group, is not in Jerusalem. It's in Antioch. It's outside of the circle of power or influence as far as what the early Jewish leaders would have thought. Doesn't that blow your mind? Like, so what we're seeing now is the center of gravity shift from Jerusalem to Antioch. In fact, we're going to learn later on that Antioch becomes the place where the first missionaries are intentionally sent out by the church, not Jerusalem. So Antioch becomes this place, this this Hellenistic, non-Jewish controlled, um, secular, godless city becomes the center of gravity for Christianity, and we're seeing the seeds of it now. And here's the crazy thing. I don't want it to be lost in us. When it talks about Barnabas, so, so what is God doing? God's establishing a new church there. So not only are new people coming together, but, there's, but they're starting to, to, to coalesce. They're, they're converting to Christianity, and they're coalescing. They're, they're forming something that, that's powerful for the gospel. And Barnabas sees it. Why? Because he's full of faith in the Holy Spirit. He's not full of the 24-hour news cycle. He's not full of fear. He's not full of, of anger. See, what anger and fear does is it shuts everything down for us. But Barnabas goes, hey, there's something here. Like, this is, this is legit what's happening here. So we better figure this out. So he grabs the best guy he can think of at the time, which is Saul, and says, you got to come help me. we got to train. And what does he do? Do you sit there and say, you need to do all this? What does he say? He gives them just two um, things. He says, remain faithful. He's like, do your best to me. Remain faithful to God and, and hold the line with steadfast purpose. Don't compromise. I mean, that's not very technical if you ask me. I mean, he's the son of encouragement, so he's just firing them up. And maybe Saul came in and, you know, at the time and tried to give him maybe some other things too. Who knows? But they stayed with them to train them because they had something there. And it was unexpected so much so that the Jewish Christians were from Jerusalem were like, we've got to go figure out what's going out there because they didn't think it was going to happen. You can imagine what it must have done for them to hear this. And so there are new churches. You know, the churches that are going to shape America in the future haven't been planted yet. And the people that are going to, to be the ones that are going to bring spiritual revival in this nation are probably 11, 12, 13 years old. Riding a skateboard, weird color hair, spend too much time on Instagram. And they're going to be the ones that turn this place around. Do we see that? Do we understand that? So it's like, I don't know if you remember a couple months ago, there was the Asbury revival that happened out there, out east. And and it was this crazy thing that happened a couple weeks, over the course of a couple weeks, where for some unknown reason, all of a sudden, all of these young people gathered in this big hall, and they just were singing songs, and they wouldn't leave. Just over and over and over and over. And, and they attracted like 60,000 people. There were lines going down the road, you know, people waiting to get in. And it was this big thing. And I remember when all that was happening, you know, you look at social media, and there was this whole group of people that were like, well, is that, I, I just have questions about that. I mean, 
Do we really know what's going on there? Do we really know who's leading this? Do we really know what they're teaching in there? Do we really know the kind of songs that they're singing and where those songs come from? What are the, what's the real motivation behind these young people ditching school and staying up late, hanging out all together? I'm like, look, I don't know what's going on over there. I, I don't even live nearby there. I, I didn't know anybody that was over there. But why are you acting like that? I mean, we sit there all the time and pray, oh, God, bring revival, bring revival. And something like that happens, and we go, oh, I don't know what that is. I'm just saying, and I don't know, so they, then they finally, finally they said, okay, you know what, we kind of got to, you know, let's just close it up, we're done, or whatever. Well, who knows what's happened from that? Who knows what are going to be the second and third order consequences from an, an environment? We know it spread to other places as well. You're not going to tell me that, that no young people were touched by that? Do you know what kind of spiritual starvation is taking place right now in this wasteland of a, of a country we have right now where people still have a deep need for God, but in so many places he's nowhere to be found. And so we have suicide, and we have depression, and we have anger, and we have hopelessness running rampant through our country and then somebody opens the doors and starts singing music like beautiful music like it was sung here today that uplifts people's souls and they just gravitate to it say maybe there's something here and so when we see those kinds of things we should say wow god you're still at work rather than well here goes you know the nation's just going down the toilet i mean what's our what what is our expectation and so god's forming this new congregation and it's beautiful that's why I love, you know, we mentioned one of the things that we do with the evangelical free churches. We do church planting. And, and I'm telling you, I've been involved with it for a long time. I was a church planter myself many years ago. And it's, what's amazing to me is how non-orchestrated or non, like people say, well, what's your, and we want people to come up with a plan. If you're a church planter, tell us what your thinking is. Tell us what your plan is. I mean, don't just go. But you know what? What's amazing to me about church plants is the stuff that God does that no one could have counted on. It's like when you start a new church, you just open the door and the Holy Spirit just does all of this crazy stuff. And, and even, even people that, so many times, even people that aren't even, like they were on the margins of Christianity. They may not even go to church. They're not even really sure what they believe. But they hear about somebody that's starting something good for God and they go, I want to be a part of that. It's like God taps in to a certain segment of the population that just resonates with doing something new as opposed to trying to attach themselves to an existing structure. And that's one of the reasons why we love starting new things at EFCA West. And we believe that, and, and God's going to do it on the margins. So don't be surprised. Now, again, we have to be wise. We have to kind of look and say we don't want, you know, there's obviously weird offshoots and things that can happen that aren't orthodox or, or, or destructive or whatever else. But, let's, but before we go there, can we just say maybe God's doing something outside of our control because we always want to put him in our box. And what you see in Acts chapter 11 is, is, is God acting, acting completely outside of everybody's expectations. Don't you want that? Like, I want that. I want God to do more than I could ever ask or imagine. And I just want to be along for the ride and go, whoa, I couldn't have counted on that. Whoa. But I do think we have to look for it. We have to orient ourselves towards it, not become cynical. So finally, the last thing that happens in this story that's pretty cool, and there's another, you talk about chaos and 
and upheaval, there's something, there's another part of this that we see in this chapter as well. And the last thing that he does in, in uncertain times to move the gospel forward is he unifies previous enemies. He uses, he uses these opportunities to unify people that were to otherwise were, were enemies or at odds with one another. So for example, look at verse 27. Here's what it says. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. And they make a note to say this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, these are the disciples in Antioch, everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So here's what happens. This guy who apparently the Spirit of God used to predict stuff, there's going to be a famine. And now you've got a, uh, you've got these new Christians who, are, who, are, who came to Christ as a result of Christians fleeing Jerusalem because of persecution. So as a result of upheaval, as a result of chaos, they are now a new church and they are growing, they are learning, they are being blown away by the reality of grace and it is filling their cup to overflowing. So rather than just fending for themselves, they have compassion on their brothers in Judea and they basically do everything they can, each according to his own ability, to provide relief to those who were suffering. How beautiful is that? And so we see, and again, it's humbling too, because when you're in Jerusalem, you're the center of everything, right? You know, Christianity, Jewish, whatever, you know, and now these guys are helping us. And the unity that's built out of something like that. By the way, this goes back to Ephesians chapter 2. When you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, it's not on the screen, But look what Paul's telling the Ephesian church. He's telling the Gentile Christians, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, we talked about that a few minutes ago, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers in the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. So you guys were nothing without your Jewish brothers who who found Christ and came to speak to you. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And listen to what he says. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two and so making peace. And then he goes on to say what God's doing is he's taking these disparate parts. He's making one structure in which his spirit can dwell. My friends, do you understand? There is no other solution for the division we have in our society than Jesus Christ. There just is not. All the kumbaya, feel good, got to come together. I remember there was a time when that was really popular. Let's just come together. But that's not the mood of the culture right now. It's you owe me. You've wronged me. I'm a victim. And we can all figure out. There's there's studies that you, you can go and figure out all the different ways you've been victimized by whoever. It's the way that it is. What's ever, what's gonna heal that? 
The only thing that's going to heal that is when I myself, with my own cultural background, my gender, my whatever, my class, whatever you want to call it, I sit there and say, you know what? Without Jesus, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. And you know, I've probably done some things in my life. I know I've done some things in my life that have displeased God. And I've probably done some things in my life that have hurt other people. Sometimes without even knowing it. And I've got to tell you, I stand before you not as a white man. I stand before you as a person desperately in need of a Savior and in need of forgiveness from God for my sin. And I'm so glad that he's given me that forgiveness. And that grace gives me a sense of joy and peace that can be found nowhere else. And then guess what? Somebody else from a different group says the same thing. You know what? At the core of my life, I'm a sinner. And I can blame the world for my problems, but my, my spiritual problem lies deep within me. And I need it. I'm, a, I'm somebody that desperately needs a Savior. And so what happens is two people in very different parts of society share the same Savior. And I want to say that even in our tribe, in our, in our Evangelical Free Church of America, we're seeing that happen. You know, all of our district superintendents, the guys that do the same job that I do um, from around the country, we met in Montgomery last two weeks ago, Montgomery, Alabama, and we toured the Legacy Museum. If you haven't seen it, it's actually pretty powerful. Um, this tells a story of slavery, especially in the South. And, you know, they have these signs like, right here on this, right where you're standing is where human beings were bought and sold. And I grew up in L.A., you know, and, and I, you know, I studied, you know, you study stuff in history. But to actually walk those streets and see what's happening is a very, it's a very powerful thing. And I remember, um, you know, you, you're, you're realizing that it, it just hit me like, wow, in our country, in our country, in our country, this kind of stuff was going on. And a lot of stuff was going on that's terrible in our country. But anyway, the point is, is, is as we were beginning to talk about things, and so I myself as a white guy, and then we have um, you know, uh, a couple of um, black di- district superintendents, or one in particular, and then our vice president, and we were all talking about this, and we were, and we were reaffirming the fact that even in the midst of some of this history, that, that if, if left unchecked could put us at odds with each other, that it's actually Jesus Christ that brings us together. And there was a beautiful unity that we could look back on American history, and rather than looking at that as an occasion for hatred, we could look at it as, as an occasion for, for um, healing and for coming together around the person of Jesus Christ. And there's a beautiful unity that's created. And I saw that, and I've experienced that in my own way. And I just don't think there's any, there's no other way that you're going to do it. There's just not any other way you're going to do it. So what God does is he uses times of upheaval like this, and, and, and you see that when people are overwhelmed by grace, they begin to come together that do things for each other that build bonds. So I don't know. In the midst of suffering, the people that are suffering around us, what are the needs around us? How can we meet those needs? We don't always even have to have a reason or do it in the name of this particular. We just do things and people go, why are you doing this? We have a church planner in Albuquerque. <laughs> In, in an area called the War Zone in Albuquerque. It's a rough place. And he goes in, and I was just talking to him last week, and they will buy the entire laundromat. They'll just say, we're just going to buy the whole laundromat. And he's, I didn't know this, but for a lot of families, it costs $100 just to do, one, to do laundry for their whole family. When all, when all the kids and everything else and the way that it works, it's, just, it's very expensive. And it's just hard. And some kids miss school because they can't, because they, they don't have clean clothes. 
And so his whole passion, he's like, if we can get these kids clean clothes and they can get in school and they're not going to miss as much school and they're going to get the education and that's going to help them. And then the mothers are crying. They're like, why are you paying for my clothes? Because Jesus has given me enough. Jesus has given me all I need and I just want to show you. And like that is the spirit of the gospel. That's the spirit. So there you have it. There's more we could say about this passage, but um, it's a beautiful passage, and you'll get an opportunity in your groups to talk about these things and talk about stuff that I said and talk about, you know, talk the things that I brought up in the passages and the things that, I, that weren't brought up in the passage. But, man, we have, we have the best hope. We have the best hope, the only hope, to heal the wounds of society. This is it. I, I just don't know of anything else. I don't know of anything else. So one of the other things I get to do in addition to being district superintendent, is I have the privilege of serving as a chaplain in the United States Air Force Reserve, and it's a beautiful thing. So once a month, I go to a base I'm connected to in Tucson, and um, so I get, to, I get to jump in that world, and it's fantastic. I love it. It's, it's a, a lot of fun. It challenges me, keeps me sharp, and uh, this way I don't have to hang out with pastors all the time. You know, I can hang out with regular people, and uh, <clears throat> it's good for my mental health. Um, but anyway, the, the, uh, it's a pretty cool unit. These guys, they do uh, it's pararescue, and they do a bunch of stuff. And the, the motto of the unit is this. These things we do that others may live. And I love that. I see it emblazoned in this sculpture we have outside our building. These things we do that others may live. And I look at the, what happened in Acts 11 and the chaos that, that was going on that God was taking them through and the response to them and everything else. And, and what I see as people are being transformed by Jesus, they're starting to orient their lives in that in the same way. And I can't think of a better motto for a church like this one or any of the churches we have in our denomination. These things we do, the decisions we make here, the way we orient our budget, the way we orient our mission, the, the, the way our ministries are, 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 are driven, the, what, what drives us, the, 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 what shapes our behavior is so that other people may live eternally. If you're a Christian, great, you got it. Thank you, Jesus. But what are we doing that others may live? And I can't think of a better concept with which to organize the affairs of the church than that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these men and women, this beautiful congregation you put together. Thank you for, this is Jared was sharing with me about cool stuff happening here, the, the schools, the ways that people are getting, uh, the ways that the community is being reached, children are being taught. Thank you for the message that's proclaimed here, for the word of God that is going out and not returning void. God, would you help us to see the spirit of the moment with hopeful eyes, with eyes of expectation, with eyes of excitement, would you open our eyes to people right in front of us 
that we've just looked right past. God, if there's anyone here today who has not yet surrendered themselves to you, I pray right where they are, they would just say, Lord Jesus, if this is the kind of God you are, that you break down barriers, that you do whatever is necessary, that you work within chaos to rescue someone like me, then I want that, I need that. I need to turn my life over to you. I cannot stand before you and claim all the great things I've done. That will not work. I'm tired of pretending I'm a good person. I'm tired of justifying myself. God, I need your grace and I need it now. I pray if anyone is in here that has that on their heart, that you would meet them and that your spirit would come into them, that they would become new and go from death to life, be born anew and again. And they would become a follower of you today, right here, right now. God, thank you for what you're going to do at this church, what you have done, even through difficulty, for how you're working in each person's life. In Jesus' name, amen.